listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, Superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, Chip Jenkins, reflects on his first year on the job and his personal philosophy of public lands. First of all, I feel like I've won life's lottery. It is a dream job for me. And for many people in the National Park Service, uh, there is no better place. Plus, the musical duo now known as Bivouac visits their hometown of Jackson and chats about making it work in Seattle's larger music scene. We went from being the big fish in the little pond to the little fish in the big pond. It was hard. But first, week one of Wyoming's Whirlwind 2022 legislative budget session was full of intense debate and some controversy. Cage Wells' Will Walkie brings us the latest on what's happening in Cheyenne. Just a quick note that depending on when you're listening, some of the details on these bills may have changed. It's been an up-and-down first few days for Teton County legislators, who as Democrats or independents are largely outnumbered while fighting for Jackson Hole residents. Representative Mike Yin of Jackson was handed an early loss on his county-optional real estate transfer tax bill, which he introduced Wednesday. The median home price in the last quarter in Teton County was $2.9 million for a house. This affects our workforce, this affects being able to hire educators, this affects being able to hire snowplow drivers, judges. The bill was supported by the entire local delegation and was sponsored by the House Revenue Committee and endorsed by the Jackson Hole Chamber of Commerce. What it would have done was allowed for county residents to vote on whether or not they want to impose a 1% hike on all properties sold for over $1.5 million. But Folks from elsewhere in the state spoke up against it. As a realtor, we oppose this. Uh, there's lots of issues with the bill itself. but This is an unequal taxation. The only people that are being taxed is residential and commercial. The people who would be voting for this are renters who are not having to take this burden. The final vote just to get the bill introduced wasn't even close, 19 eyes to 40 no's. So it's back to the drawing board for a proposal that could raise tens of millions for local affordable housing projects and kick some revenue back to the state. Some of Yin's other ideas have had more success, though, notably a property tax refund program. Republican Senator Fred Baldwin of Kemmer introduced that concept Wednesday. Now they bought their house, they own it, they're retired, they're on a fixed income. Now the taxes are becoming so high because of the elevated property values, they can't afford to live there anymore. This bill gives us one method of relief or something like that. Lots of lawmakers had questions, and the measure still has to be voted up twice more and then pass the House and governor's desk to become law. But Republican Bill Landon of Casper spoke up during debate, saying his residents don't have time to wait on this. This might be the number one issue that I'm hearing about in my community. I've had dozens of people indicate to me that we've got to do something on this front. Other wide-ranging proposals also continue to move forward, largely focused on Republican priorities. One bill introduced in the House would ban abortions once a fetus has reached viability, presuming the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Another from the Senate prohibits the teaching of critical race theory in schools, and another ends the practice of crossover voting in primary elections. But the major task the legislator has to make a decision on this session is Wyoming's budget. Senate File 66, American Rescue Plan Act Recovery Funds Appropriations, 
an act relating to the emergency. Billions of dollars in federal funding are set to be allocated across Wyoming, and the governor has released his plan for what he'd like to spend it on, prioritizing education, infrastructure, and economic development. One of his most controversial proposals, though, has to do with mental health. The suicide rate. Uh, we don't have the, the stats for this year, but the most recent one, we've returned to number one in Wyoming consistently, is in the top five. Senator Baldwin of Kemmer introduced an amendment to the budget that would have allocated just over $2 million to create a 24-7 suicide hotline. That's something the state doesn't currently have, and health providers say it could help people access local resources rather than national ones. When you try to explain to them you can't go to your mental health care center in Opal, Wyoming, there's not one, and you can't drive down the road 80 miles because the roads are closed. The wind's blowing 60 miles an hour and it's snowing. Uh, somebody in Florida may not understand that. It's, it's important that we have a local connection in that suicide hotline available 24 hours. But others, including Republican Larry Hicks of Bags, said they just couldn't support it. The measure failed by just two votes. This is not how you want to build a program. And this creates an ongoing obligation to fund this and an expectation. And you don't do it with one-time funding. Other budget items, as well as the state redistricting plan, will continue to be the main subjects of debate during week two. As of press time, Medicaid expansion also does not appear to have enough support in either body to even be introduced this session. That's despite rallies for it in Cheyenne in recent weeks, a letter from hundreds of businesses supporting the measure, and a poll from late last year showing that 66% of Wyomingites are in favor of expansion. Will Walkie? KHOL News. Chip Jenkins, the superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, has been in his role for a little more than a year. Coming up next, KHOL's Kyle Mackey chats with Jenkins about the role of public lands and backcountry safety following the recent death of 27-year-old Rad Spencer in the park. Superintendent Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Oh, thank you for the invitation to be here. I am betting that your job as superintendent of Grand Teton National Park sounds like a dream job to a lot of people, but I'm sure it's also, you know, a lot more challenging than people might realize. And this hasn't been the easiest past year for the park from record visitation to really high profile missing persons cases like the Gabby Petito case um, to drought and other climate impacts. Uh, what has it been like to be in charge through all of these, you know, difficult situations? Well, first of all, I feel like I've won life's lottery. It is a dream job for me. And for many people in the National Park Service, uh, there is no better place to want to aspire to be. And it, it really is an honor um, to be able to be here, to be able to work uh, for these resources and with these people is, uh, is a career-defining experience. And yeah, there are challenges. That's part of the reason why it's a, a, a great place to work. I think what most people don't realize is a national park is 
actually, it's a lot like the county in a rural state. Um, we have about 25,000 people that will visit the park on any given summer day. We run multiple wastewater treatment systems. We're responsible for the roads and plowing the roads. We have our own law enforcement program. We have our own structural fire program. We run our own park medics. We also have uh, education programs and we have IT and finance and budget, uh, uh, as well as also needing to work with uh, dangerous animals like grizzly bears and bison. Uh, so it is a multifaceted organization with incredibly talented and dedicated people. Uh, and that's why it's a great place to work. Yeah, I like that metaphor of the park as kind of its own city or county. Yeah. That's pretty amazing to think about. Yeah. All right. I read a recent op-ed related to the bighorn sheep issue in the park, mm -hmm. which we don't have to get into right now. But I wanted to ask you about this op-ed was kind of arguing that Americans should look at their public lands as a privilege and not necessarily as a right. But I know that's an incredibly controversial argument. And people have all kinds of opinions about public lands here in Jackson and across the West and across the country. So I wanted to ask you a bit about your kind of personal philosophy of, of public lands and, you know, how that's maybe evolved over your career in the Park Service. Yeah, I, well, I, I would certainly frame it differently than that because it is, you know, the first word in it is public lands, right? And these lands belong to all Americans. And um, I would say as a, um, it is a uh, – one of the best things you can do in terms of right of ownership is uh, is to be a steward, is to take care of it. Um, you know, if you uh, if you own a house or if you own property, um, or even just you know not even not even the sense of owning land, but if you own your other property, uh, you know whether it's a great pair of skis or an expensive mountain bike, you know, generally speaking. People care about it, right? You you take care of it. Um, you pay attention in terms of how you use it, and I think that uh, the best thing that people can do is uh, they can pay attention to the condition of their public lands, whether it's Grand Teton or Yellowstone or any other um, part of our public lands. Part of that is yes, we welcome people to come and visit. Recreating responsibly, being able to take care of the land uh, when you come and visit is what we need people to do. One thing I've heard from people in the Park Service is that it's not our job to tell people how to recreate on their public lands, um, but people can also get themselves into dangerous situations on public lands. Um, you know, sadly, we just had a death in the park on Sunday. This 27-year-old Jackson man um, died while skiing the Apocalypse Kular. Um, and I wonder, you know, how you kind of grapple with the park's role in terms of people's backcountry recreation. You know— Part of the reason that the park is here is is for people to be able to seek inspiration in whatever ways they find it that's that's consistent with preservation of the resources, right? And there is a long established, you know, well before the National Park Service of uh, of people challenging themselves emotionally, uh, mentally, physically through their interactions with, you know, with, with the environment and with the ecosystem. And that's, you know, that is part of the purpose of national parks, provided that when that's done, it's done in a way that uh, does not harm uh, the resource, does not harm other, other people. You know, our hearts certainly goes out to Rad's uh, family and uh, friends, right? I, I know that he was connected in this community in ways that I don't fully appreciate, but that, um, that you know, but that that is a, a, a tragedy. Um, I think also 
We do ask people, though, to recreate responsibly, and that part of that is making choices that don't put other people at risk, right? And we do find ourselves in the situation that when people get into trouble, we work really closely with Teton County Search and Rescue as well as our own uh, rangers, where when we can, we go out and try to you know help people when they are in distress. You know, the reality is, too, that for the um, high-profile um, accidents that happen like this week, what we also faced this last year is that we had three, over 300 medical calls in the park. The vast majority of those were actually people within a mile or two of the trailhead who were suffering um, from heat exhaustion or from uh, simple twists and falls, people who um, far less skilled and maybe far less prepared for even taking a short walk in the park. And I think that that's actually where we are concentrating most of our efforts is we appreciate the high-skilled, highly talented folks who are feeding their soul through, you know, uh, through challenging skiing and mountaineering terrain. I think where where we are more focused is on uh, more of the average tourist who may be here and don't realize they're at 6,500 feet and the intensity of the sun and how they can have a, a safe visit without having to call one of the park medics. Well, thank you again, Superintendent Jenkins, for joining us today on K-12. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to be here, and we appreciate everybody tuning in. You can also hear an extended version of that conversation on our website, 891k2l.org, and as a bonus episode of Jackson Unpacked coming soon. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from K2L. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next is a story from our ongoing reporting collaboration with the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Network about the transition away from fossil fuels. It's hard to imagine a carbon neutral world without considering airplanes. Commercial aviation contributes about 2.5% of annual global CO2 emissions from fossil fuel use. But as Matt Hoish of KOTO in Telluride reports, some airports are starting to find ways to bring that number down. It might be hard to tell, but that's the sound of a plane with lower carbon emissions. The aircraft is refueling on the tarmac at the Telluride Regional Airport, which last year began integrating sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, into its operation. I guess a simple way to explain it, it's non-petroleum. You're not using oil, you're using vegetation, you're using uh, used vegetable oils, those kinds of things into the manufacture of this fuel. Kenneth Manpa is Telluride's airport director. According to Manpa, Telluride is one of two airports in Colorado using the fuel. SAF has a lot of upsides. It can reduce aviation emissions by up to 80 percent. And it's interchangeable with conventional fuel, which helps on the equipment front. You don't have to change your infrastructure. You don't have to have it in a separate tank or anything else. The downside? Well, it's very expensive. Supply is one factor contributing to that cost. 
SAF is very limited in the U.S. That's according to Richard Thacker, Director of Integration and Operational Strategy at Atlantic Aviation, a company that services providers across the country. That's the real challenge with SAF right now. It's not particularly new technology, but again, it is very, very limited in quantity. And so it's very difficult to you know, get it to markets, especially in the interior portion of the, of the country. Demand is another factor. A lot of airports, according to Thacker, are asking for SAF. The requests are coming from coast to coast, and the answer is always the same. We're doing our best to get our hands on as much of supply as we possibly can, but right now it's, it's very limited. That limited supply also complicates the green aspect of the fuel. Atlantic supplies SAF to Aspen-Pitkin County Airport, the other spot in Colorado using it. Thacker notes they had to be very thoughtful about transporting the fuel almost 1,200 miles to the mountain town. We didn't want the, the headline to be, dirty truck delivers clean fuel. So we made sure that the transport trucks were utilizing renewable diesel to transport the, the product. And then we did the equation on that and made sure the carbon benefit or the loss of the carbon benefit of the SAF was minimal, and it was. Several major airlines, including United and British Airways, have used SAF. And there's a chance supply, and therefore cost, will be less of an issue in the future. Last year, the Biden administration announced a goal to ramp up domestic SAF production from the current level of roughly 4.5 million gallons per year to 3 billion by 2030. Dr. Tracy Dodd thinks that sort of top-down push is essential to make aviation green. Dodd is a researcher at the Adelaide Business School in Australia who focuses on decarbonization. We wouldn't have renewable electricity if it wasn't for government intervention. And, and I think that airlines have been left holding the baby on this one and everybody needs to get behind and support them. But Dodd also stresses more attention from governments starts with more focus from the public. People are not completely aware of the environmental impact of flying or that there are other options available. And so we need to increase awareness of that. And by doing that, legislators have a stronger mandate to increase regulation, which supports business. Along the way, Dodd adds, it's important not to greenwash and overstate the environmental benefits of existing green options. I feel if you were to look at a whole range of, of websites around sustainable aviation fuel, you would have a false sense of security that things are looking good. This is all positive. We can be carbon neutral. We don't have to make those trade-offs. You know, I think that that's not helpful in the community conversation. Current SAF, Dodd notes, doesn't eliminate carbon from aviation completely. So carbon neutral flying will take more innovation and leadership. But Dodd also says she's optimistic that by 2050, she'll be able to fly on a plane and produce little to no carbon emissions. In the meantime, Manpa says the Telluride Regional Airport aims to increase its SAF usage over the next decade. The airport currently uses a fuel blend that's about 30% SAF. So if we can just keep increasing that, if manufacturing can scale up, we're first in line. There's certainly no shortage of incentives. As climate change intensifies, a warmer world could dent the winter and summer tourism ecosystem that draws planes and passengers to the airport in the first place. For KOTO and the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, I'm Matt Hoish.
The Jackson-grown band Bivouac, formerly known as Head to Head, came back to visit their hometown for a show at the Mangy Moose on Saturday, February 19th. K-12 music director Jack Catlin sat down with band members Dan Sanford and Otto Weeders ahead of the show to talk about their musical roots in the Tetons and how moving to Seattle influenced their sound. This conversation was recorded live on February 15th. Dan Sanford and Otto Weeders of Bivouac join us now in the KHOL studios. Welcome in, guys. Hey, how's it going? Thanks hey, for having us. Hey, Jack. Hey, my pleasure. Great to have you back and in the studio. So first off, can you tell us what it was like to grow up here in Jackson from a musician's perspective? First off, to start that question, I think we owe a huge portion to the Jackson Hole music experience. You know, they kind of got us our start on everything. It's how Dan and I met as musicians and as drummers. All of our instructors, you know, Ed Domer, Andy Calder, they helped Jeff shape Ida Miller. Jeff Ida Miller, yep, they helped shape us as musicians since we were like 10. And I think that was really special to have a really close, small community that just got a lot of young kids really excited into music and helped them, you know, develop their talents at their own pace. And we followed that all through basically until we left for Seattle. So what first got you guys interested in electronic music and when did you realize you needed to make your own version of it? I mean, I think Otto and I kind of had similar stories. I think we had always had an interest growing up. It was kind of the cool thing, especially when like middle school, like dubstep was coming out. Electronic music was becoming like, oh, this is cool. Like, this is a cool new sound. And I think really what sparked it for Otto and I was the fact that we were really into jazz and we were into plenty of other acoustic music. Otto was in a band with a Wyatt Lowe. It was Wyatt Lowe and the Automatics at the time and playing like blues and rock. And I was in a rock fusion jazz band. So like we were definitely interested in non-electronic music, but we always is kind of in the zeitgeist. And then I think what really sparked is when we were like, what if we play drums over this? And, and that's kind of how we got our start. We were both interning at the Pink Garter at the time. And we wanted just a space to set up and practice drums and just be as loud as we could. And we would practice together. We had this like dual drum thing. And then one day Dan just set up his computer. He just set up his laptop and he just started DJing and we started like playing along to it. And it just kind of we were like, like, whoa, it was like a big light bulb <laughs> moment. We were like, all right, this is way more fun than just practicing drums. So we just decided to try and like make our own music and it just kind of snowballed from there. So you guys left for Seattle in 2015 to be part of a larger music scene and have found success there. What was it like leaving this smaller local music scene here in Jackson that you grew up in and helped build? It was hard at first. I think one thing that at the time I definitely took for granted, I mean, being in a, in a really small town that is fortunate to have, you know, through the Pink Garter, had, they had massive acts come through, you know, TV on the radio Dirty Heads, all these huge A-list touring artists that Dan and I got to firsthand work with directly and be a part of in a big city. Those guys are touring through two to 3,000 cap rooms in big venues. And when we first moved there, it was we went from being the big fish in the little pond to the little fish in the big pond. It was hard. It was hard to get production jobs. It was hard to like find your way because it went from being like very few of us doing this in this valley to like thousands of people our age trying to go down the same path. And it took a while. When I first moved there, 
I think the entire first year of 2015, I didn't even get to touch a console. You know, I was doing like Postmates and stuff to pay my rent and it was a total life change for a minute. It was, it was hard, but we found our way. I found a small production company and I was able to work my way up through it. It was cool. It was definitely humbling though. So what about each of those two places, Jackson and Seattle, has most influenced your sound and or approach to making music? Someone said this to us recently. It made me think about it a lot, but like our sound has matured. And I think living in a city and getting that those experiences, traveling to other cities too, like not just being limited to Seattle. Like we've been lucky enough to travel a bit and it's matured our sound because we've definitely just thought about other places and what makes us too and not just being like oh i like this sound and kind of unknowingly stealing a sound or whatever we've really like more nailed down like well what makes you know when we were head to head what makes head to head to head to head and now bivouac it's like what makes that sound and i think seattle gave us the perspective of different voices a larger community and kind of voicing that and i think jackson really gave us like this aspect of discipline on the instruments. I mean, I think Seattle gave us a lot of access to, you know, we got to meet a lot of new producers. We got to meet yeah. a lot of really different musicians that helped transform who we were as musicians and as producers and as production people. And then taking all this, you know, new knowledge we gained in Seattle and then being able to come back, Jackson work on music like on our own. I think it was just a healthy combination of the two. And the nature. I mean, can't deny it being inspired by outdoors too. Definitely expansive sound. Mm -hmm. Like we're into that. And I think it's very inspired because of the outdoors. You can catch Bivouac live this Saturday, February 19th at the Mangy Moose in Teton Village. More information and tickets at mangymoose.com. I'm Jack Catlin and this is KHOL Jackson. for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. A bill aimed at improving data collection on juvenile justice in Wyoming advanced out of the House Judiciary Committee Wednesday. The proposed legislation would require the state's Department of Family Services to create a statewide database tracking offenses committed by adjudicated youth and what happened to them, whether they're committed to detention, residential treatment, or their cases are otherwise handled. No standard statewide system for reporting such data currently exists, and that's a problem, according to Director of the Wyoming Children's Law Center, Donna Sheen. We need to understand what happens to youth in our system first, um, and then be able to find out what outcomes, what interventions give us the best outcomes. And so without this critical initial piece, we'll, we'll have very um, little luck, I think, turning our system around. Federal data shows that Wyoming has long incarcerated juveniles at the highest rate in the country, though the way the state currently reports its numbers includes children in foster care and others not in locked facilities. The proposed bill will now advance to the House of Representatives for a vote by the whole body. 
The Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Forest Service announced earlier this month what the federal grazing fees will be in 2022. The fees are $1.35 per animal unit, which is five sheep, one horse, or a calf and cow. That's actually lower than what was imposed in 1981. And reporter for High Country News Kylie Moore says if those 1980s fees had simply kept up with inflation, they should be just over $7 per unit. People are upset about inflation impacting them, and so they kind of feel like it should be impacting everyone. Moore says there are over 24,000 total grazing permits on federal lands throughout the country. She also says there are strong ranching lobbyists advocating to keep the fees where they're at. And as with anything to do with public lands, there's always kind of this push and pull between who gets to use it and what does that access look like? And also what are the consequences of what happens on public lands? Some conservationists are now arguing that grazing has major ecological impacts on public lands and raising ranching fees could help offset the costs of maintaining rangelands. Jackson might finally have a chance for a little snow from a system expected to come in starting Sunday. But the state of the snowpack is still concerning for Wyoming hydrologist Jim Fahey of the Natural Resources Conservation Service. We're going to have to have one of those, what they call, where I'm from, the West Coast, California. It's uh, the Miracle March. Well, we're going to have to have a Miracle March as well. <laughs> Fahey's been working in Wyoming since 2003. And he says he's seen unprecedented low levels for the Snake River over the past year. The Snake Basin snowpack peaked at about 108% of median in early January, but has dropped to 83% of median as of press time. Looking at an extended forecast, Fahey also says there are no current signs indicating above-average precipitation for March through May. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band, Strombucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.